You're listening to the Smart Policy Podcast, a production of the University of Tennessee's Institute for Public Service. I recently heard a great metaphor to describe what it's like fighting the overdose crisis. Imagine you walk into a bathroom to find the tub faucet running on full blast, water overflowing and pouring down over the sides and all over the floor. If you're going to clean it up, what's the first thing you're going to do? Grab a mop? Obviously not. You're going to go for the faucet. That's essentially what prevention means. Stopping people from ever developing a substance use disorder in the first place. Turning off the water. Once you do that, the mopping, by which we mean treatment, for example, it will actually start to have an impact on the flood. So what does prevention look like? Everyone who's gone to elementary school in the last 50 years has had some sort of just-say-no sessions and activities. We're all familiar with this type of informational prevention. But there is a lot more to the picture. When we say change consequences, I don't mean they always have to be punitive. We've got to make sure that we are changing the environmental design of our communities so that they are safe places where the healthy decision is an easy decision. My guest this month is Stephanie Strudner, CEO of the Prevention Alliance of Tennessee an advocacy organization that represents dozens of grassroots coalitions across the state fighting substance use disorders of all kinds. Over the last few years, she has rapidly become one of the most important voices for primary prevention in all of Tennessee. The difference between advocating at the state level and the federal level really just depends on the law that you're trying to change. There have been times previously where we didn't even have to pass a state law. All we had to do was go to the commissioner of health who could make a uniform decision and make a change just by their decision. Hello, I'm Stephanie Strutner, the CEO of the Prevention Alliance of Tennessee. Thank you for joining me, Stephanie. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the Prevention Alliance of Tennessee? Uh, how long has it been around? Uh, what do you all do? The Provincial Alliance of Tennessee has been a, a grassroots organization of coalitions across the state that are engaged in primary substance use prevention. In fact, our agency was started by coalitions for coalitions, and the purpose was to really be the advocacy branch to unite us in a coordinated effort at the state legislature. And since then, we've grown a little bit. So while we started with some state aspirations, we've also organized ourselves to be advocates at the federal level as well, and have been able to do several things in Tennessee. One, have a unified voice for primary substance use prevention, where before our voice was a little bit quieter because we weren't united. Uniting together has been able to allow us to move public health policy forward legislatively, but also to be able to generate additional revenue so that coalitions across the state could engage in primary prevention. Our goal is to have representation from all 95 counties in Tennessee right now. We're at about 68 out of the 95 counties. And so constantly growing, we also have a number of unfunded coalitions that are member partners, another about 20 communities that join us uh, through unfunded partnerships. But our, our goal is to make sure that every county in the state of Tennessee ultimately is served by a primary substance use prevention coalition. 
this sounds exactly like the kind of thing that is needed. I, I feel like prevention is an under-discussed portion of the substance use disorder. Uh, uh, well, uh, let's say the overdose crisis in general. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me about what prevention really does mean for the average person. Benjamin Franklin was the first who was coined as saying an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And we certainly see that almost to the exact ratio that Benjamin Franklin identified. Hmm. And we see prevention being very cost effective. Oftentimes we don't talk about it very much because in some cases it is difficult to measure what's not happening. So primary substance use prevention is effective when there are no consequences associated with risk behaviors because they're not happening. So we have to be very keen and aware of how we measure our short-term or intermediate and our long-term change. In Tennessee, we've actually been really good at articulating these numbers and these investments in prevention. And so we've been able to come up with a cost benefit analysis. And what we found is a range of anywhere from $9 saved in te public taxpayer burden spending for every dollar invested in prevention, all the way up to $24 saved per dollar invested in primary substance use prevention. So a lot of times when we say primary prevention, the first thing that people think about is, oh, great, you go and do programs with kids in schools. Right. Well, that might be a very small piece of how we provide information, but our work is surrounded by an evidence-based process called the Strategic Prevention Framework. We use the Strategic Prevention Framework to help us engage in community assessment to identify the needs specific to the local community. Mm. We do that through a comb combination of strategies, uh, providing information, building skills, providing support. Those are our individual level interventions. We also focus our efforts on environmental strategies, or in other words, those population level strategies that reach all members of a community. Changing access or changing consequences, modifying the physical design of the environment, and modifying policy. And so when we engage in these comprehensive strategies, we're able to affect change on a broader scale and not just within the individual. What that means is really shaping the community environment, shaping the social norms, changing the, uh, shaping the customs, shaping the laws and policies and norms, uh, the laws and enforcement in which people live, work, and play, and thereby shaping their behavior as a result. This is very similar to, um, I talked with Trent Coffee of Stand uh, about a lot of these types of things. He, he said, like you said, it's not just going to talk to kids, you have to go in and treat the whole family. These community norms, these you, you talk about access. Uh, of course, I'm sure economic opportunities is a huge role as well. But um, already, I mean, it sounds like you've discussed a number of uh, pretty significant policy and uh, I guess more as well private sector achievements. Um, can you tell me some of the things that have happened in recent years in terms of uh, improving prevention? One, uh, this is one of the most significant accomplishments, and this happened at the federal level. Back in uh, 2015, our coalitions advocated uh, through the HELP Committee, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, uh, through the U.S. Senate to identify substance use prevention specific language in the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which allows us to have curricula for students in elementary and secondary education settings to engage in primary prevention um, at that school level. In addition, some of the other policies that have been noteworthy are uh, repealing several different portions of preemption uh, that 
relate to tobacco regulation, there are limitations on what local municipalities can do to regulate tobacco in their municipalities. Um, our coalitions have been strong advocates for repealing different forms of preemption to allow, for example, local communities to make their parks smoke-free venues or to allow hospitals um, to become smoke-free venues. Schools are, are of course already smoke-free, but college campuses didn't always fall under that. Yeah. And so repealing preemption has given us the opportunity to allow local control for a number of different things. Um, one of the most recent activities related to tobacco preemption repeal was allowing smoke-free music venues in the state that local communities can now opt into. Uh, in addition, uh, coalitions have been effective in advocating for the prescription monitoring system that gives physicians and pharmacies the opportunity to identify people who might be misusing opioids. Also, fentanyl test strips were classified as drug paraphernalia in the state of Tennessee. And so our coalitions have uh, been strong advocates to repeal that law and, and declassify fentanyl test strips. I could go on. Our coalitions are really outstanding um, and, and do a great deal of advocacy. Those are just some of the highlights of things that have happened in recent years. That's quite a lot. That's a very large number of, of achievements, I think, and it covers a lot of different areas. I'm also very glad you brought up tobacco because usually when that's discussed in the context when people are talking about opioids and tobacco comes into the equation uh, in my experience a lot of the times it's usually to compare and contrast how say opioid abatement money should be spent uh, there's a lot of uh, disappointment across the state i think and how the tobacco settlement money ended up going into roads and bridges not to say that roads and bridges weren't needed but uh, at the same time there were there's more of a desire to see opioid abatement money funneled into programs that are directly related uh, but before we go down that subject, because I do think that's an important topic about tobacco, that's a, in general, that's an under-discussed uh, part of all this. Well, certainly if we look at, and you mentioned how uh, the tobacco master settlement dollars went into Tennessee's general fund for a number of years. And when Governor Haslam was in office, he reversed that and and was able to put those master settlement dollars into primary prevention, which of course was a huge win for public health. We can look directly at adolescent prevalence of use and even that among adults during that time and follow the trends, the downward trend in prevalence of use as we put more prevention dollars into the strategies that I mentioned before. So as we're thinking about vaping, of course, we have seen this incredible downward trend in tobacco prevalence of use, especially among adolescents over the last 10 years. Mm. As we have seen that tobacco combustible cigarettes, we're talking about traditional combustible cigarettes here, right. is down to almost next to nothing now. However, when vape devices and electronic cigarettes emerged on the market, we did see a significant increase in prevalence of use, especially among adolescents. So there are a number of factors that go into why that happened, but what becomes very important is one, how those products are regulated. Yeah. Our coalitions have been advocates at the state level to regulate those vape devices and to also age restrict 
those vape devices. I suppose this is a target of some of the more federal action, for example. I know there's been a lot of talk about the FDA. There's this perception that they're not moving hard enough. Uh, even though they have uh, taken action aimed at Juul, there are a number of other companies still out there. Is this on your radar for the near future and for PAT, that is? Vaping is certainly on our radar, and it is especially troublesome for our adolescents. Most of our coalitions across the state also have youth coalitions, and those youth coalitions are made of mostly high school, but also some middle school students who are engaging in public health advocacy along with us. They are some of our strongest voices, and quite honestly, a lot of our lawmakers listen to them more clearly than they listen to a lot of our adult advocates. And what our youth are saying is almost exclusively related to vaping. Hmm. They see tremendous rates of vaping among their peers. They see, see the consequences associated with their peers' use of vape devices. And as, when the FDA outlawed the flavoring uh, of some of those devices, our, our, our youth are the ones who stepped up and said, listen, we know that you banned this, but here's the loophole that you're not thinking about that we see in our schools. And those were the Lucy's or the single use devices that our youth were saying, this is what everybody's using. And so when we went to Washington DC for our day on the Hill, that's what our youth were talking about to the public health experts uh, in Congress and also in the Senate. And so definitely on our radar, it continues to be a talking point. Anytime we speak to our officials in Washington, D.C. And of course, that has a trickle-down effect on our state as well. Absolutely. At this generation, I have to admit, I think they're unfairly criticized in some ways. I, I think in a lot of ways, there's uh, some pretty significant achievements. I do see a lot of activism at their level. For example, the, the Sober Curious movement is increasingly prevalent, and there's lots of uh, talk about making sure uh, over-drinking is removed from uh, the, cult the culture on college campuses and the like. So I, it, I it's interesting to see that you've seen uh, policymakers listen to them so thoroughly. I, I, I think that bodes very well. One thing that I, I find to be especially rewarding in my position is to engage youth in advocacy, because when we bring them to the table, they appear to be so nervous and so anxious. And thinking about speaking in front of an elected official to them is just really intimidating. Mm. In fact, I'll say it's intimidating to a lot of our adult volunteers as well, yeah. especially the youth. But to see that moment where they recognize that they are being heard is really, really cool to see. Mm. And to see the growth that can happen, even just in the span of one day, where we have adolescents who are those nervous bus sitters on the way to the Tennessee Capitol, they then meet with their legislature. They see, you see the light come on and you see them at the point of acknowledgement that their voice is being heard, that the legislator is listening to them. And especially when they see laws be affected based on what they shared with their elected officials is something to behold. In fact, we've seen a lot of students who have come up through our youth coalitions who have gone into careers in public policy because of their experience. That's incredible. You're engaging all these people, you're bringing them to the table, they are the coalitions. It's not Prevention Alliance coming down as some sort of authoritarian thing. It's, if anything, Prevention Alliance is, is a scaffolding for those grassroots movements. What, what is it like getting a coalition uh, off the ground and running? Well, certainly there, there needs to be some level of community readiness that there's an issue that the community wants to address. 
And anytime that happens, we see people really come together. People come together because they have been personally affected, whether they've lost a loved one to substance use disorder or overdose or related uh, illness. And ultimately, everybody just wants to create a better tomorrow. Mm. And that's what we're all doing. Certainly, there are some challenges to what we're up against. I tell people and, and consult people all the time. And the quote that I use, I have reminded myself of this hundreds of times, but I remind people of this almost every day. And Steve Jobs once said, if you want to please everyone, don't be a leader, sell ice cream. <laughs> so sometimes our policy stance is unpopular, mm. but when it is good for public health policy and it's something that fits within our mission is something that we'll support. We're in what is being called the fourth wave of the overdose crisis. Um, it's acknowledged now that the majority of deaths are, are in, they do involve fentanyl, but they also are polysubstance use. What kind of challenge is there? And I, I mean, meth is different than opioids, is different than tobacco, is different than alcohol. I mean, it's, surely it must be an interesting challenge. Certainly we have seen for well over a decade the polysubstance crisis that we face, uh, not just in Tennessee, right. but in states all across the country. And the question that really we have to answer is why are people craving any drug? Because it, it doesn't necessarily seem that people are, are drug specific until they cannot get that drug. And, and then suddenly it's whatever we can get our hands on. Mm. And so we, while simultaneously engaging in primary prevention, also have partners in other pieces of the continuum of care that engage in treatment and recovery and aftercare to make sure that the treatment and recovery and aftercare becomes prevention for those individuals who have already engaged in use and maybe already have a substance use disorder. So it's also interesting to note the, the economic push of why we have a drug crisis. So there is a lot of money generated for a certain number of individuals based on the sale of illicit substances. And so what we see now is the, this drive to increase profit, to maximize revenue. And there's a, a project called Operation Sentinel that I have been in collaboration with that's an international project to identify where drugs are coming from when they are being imported into the United States. And what we are seeing from some samples and testing that have been going on related to this project is that most drugs, call it methamphetamine, call it heroin, call it whatever you want to call it, are being cut on average 15 to 20 times before they get to the end user. Mm. And what we're seeing is dozens of different types of drugs in that one drug. So whether somebody is out seeking methamphetamine or whether a person is out seeking heroin, the likelihood of there being anywhere between 11 and 15 different drugs in the product that they use is incredibly high. The introduction of nidazines into the drug culture in America was really the, the sole push behind the FDA allowing the eight milligram bioavailable dose of Narcan to be approved for the market. Because what we're seeing is the just the massive utilization of fentanyl and the high, high doses of fentanyl and nidazines 
we're just completely rendering Narcan and any other form of naloxone useless. The danger of a lethal dose of a drug is higher now than it has ever been. I've heard this from several people before that, you know, it was one thing back in the 80s to say, you know, don't do drugs, they're dangerous. But now it's it's unbelievable how one small, simple mistake can end a life. This is 11, you said what, an average of 11 or 12 drugs in a single sample, cutting cutting them 15 times before they actually hit the end user. This is incredibly complex. I, I've uh, also been having conversations with people about how there's not, you, you talked about the FDA being um, encouraged to expedite the approval of higher dose Narcan. There's others, there are other situations, for example, they're not approving tests uh, quickly enough for all of these novel substances for a point of contact. Uh, point of care contact. In other words, a lot of people don't realize you can't test for fentanyl in the emergency room. And even if you were, I mean, you're talking about all these uh, combinations of drugs. I mean, it's, it must be a nightmare clinically. Well, and for one thing, it's very expensive. I mean, mm. we don't even have the capability locally to test for nitazines with the lack of accessibility of those local identification options and for analysis we really are at a disadvantage. And so when we think about having the capability of testing in emergency departments and so forth, it, it's, it's a huge cost. And the, the technology for rapid analysis, you know, in every hospital across the country, for example, is not something that's feasible today. I believe that at some point in time it will be, but our technology is catching up with the demand and you know it, it, it's it's basic economics it's supply and demand the supply has um not been able to catch up with the demand that we have for drug testing that does make a lot of sense uh we saw a lot of that with um various forms with fentanyl test strips with 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 narcan there was a shortage during 2020 you've mentioned now several times nitazines it's definitely a, a, a massive part of this current moment in the overdose crisis but just for, for the average listener who may not understand the difference between nitazines and say xylazines i was wondering if you could give us a quick uh, shakedown of what those are Nitazines are particular synthetic opioids. Um, the DEA has identified that they were never approved for medical use in the United States. They're being sourced from largely China, maybe some other countries, but are being largely mixed into other drugs. So I mentioned before how what we see in um, samples that have been removed from the street or from toxicology report from individuals who have overdosed is that they took what they believe to be heroin, for example, but there, it was adulterated with a number of other drugs. So we're seeing nitazines being mixed into these other substances. Why? Because you can get a lot of nitazine for a very small amount of money, but it only takes a very tiny, tiny amount to achieve the high that people would expect based on the street drug that they're purchasing. And so again, it goes back to the economics of maximizing revenue with as little input as possible. So they're, they're diluting the product, um, they're adding nitazines to maximize the effect that the user expects uh, to maximize their, their profits. But what we're seeing are deadly consequences in the victims. Which really is just, like you said, if the best medicine is uh, going to be prevention, it's it's more urgent than ever before. Earlier on, we had Clay Jackson on, Dr. Clay Jackson out from uh, uh, West Tennessee, and he uh, said it's 
very likely we're going to have to go back to some form of just say no uh, type of prevention education. There's uh, so many different versions of, of programs like these, some of which have evidence behind them, some don't. Uh, but uh, of course, absolutely youth outreach being such an important part of prevention, this is going to be a pretty complex challenge, right? Certainly, but I would argue that programs like Just Say No are just a, a very small amount of what we actually do in primary prevention. So what we really have to do is make sure that we mitigate risk factors with protective factors, mm. that we are building protective factors around people, primarily adolescents and young adults in our communities to make sure that they are equipped, not only with the knowledge, so just say no provides knowledge, but we can't just provide knowledge and information to people. We have to also help them to build their own skill set so that they know what to do if faced with a decision where they have to decide, will I use or will I experiment or will I not? So we've got to be able to build refusal skills. We have to be able to build protective skills. We have to also be able to provide support, not only to individuals, but also to communities to make sure that we are empowering people and communities and norms and standards where it's okay not to use. We've also got to reduce access to the substances, but increase access to protective factors and treatment. And we've got to change consequences. So, and, and when we say change consequences, I don't mean they always have to be punitive right? because there are a lot of rehabilitative consequences that we can place into our systems so that we aren't just, for example, sending people to jail right. or we aren't just sending people to in-school suspension or expulsion, but we're giving them the opportunity to build resilience through an adverse event that they might experience. We've got to make sure that we are changing the environmental design of our communities so that they are safe places where the healthy decision is an easy decision. And then, of course, we've got to push public health policy to make sure that we're creating systems where our adolescents can't just go and buy an illicit substance that's going to be harmful to their body and brain without any consequence and under systems where that's legal. These are just a few examples, but we really have to have this whole comprehensive form of primary prevention. If we were to just rely on providing information, we would be leaps and bounds behind where we are now. If I may be so bold, um, what are y'all looking at for this coming year? This legislative session, as in many previously, we will be following bills that are pushing for the legalization of cannabis, some age restrictions on cannabinoids. Delta-8 has become a hot topic. Uh, Delta-8 uh, has no restriction on age to purchase in the state of Tennessee by our laws. We're also uh, watching some sunset laws. We have the Medical Cannabis Commission that is giving recommendations to the General Assembly on uh, what to do with respect to cannabis and marijuana legalization. Let's see, also uh, there is an op opioid uh, council as well that is set to be extended. Of course, we uh, are supportive of those commissions to be um, extended. There may be some tobacco preemption repeal bills that pop up. 
if so, coalitions are usually strong advocates of the uh, preemption repeal. Those are at the forefront. We're also, there's not a bill, but every time we have an audience, uh, whether it be this will happen in at the federal level and at the state level, our advocates will be talking a lot about Medicare coverage for the treatment of acute pain. And mm. so if you if you dig deep, you will find that even though there are non-opioid pain treatment alternatives that are on the formulary to be covered, that the, and I use air quotes as you did before, the medical necessity is determined at such a level that most of the time, because on paper, an opioid is much cheaper for a short duration than what some of the other treatments would be for acute pain. Mm -hmm. For example, physical therapy, acupuncture, chiropractic, massage therapy, these pain treatment alternatives actually treat the root cause of pain. And so the duration of treatment is much shorter and thereby issues a cost savings rather than a, a greater expense. We also know that 29.9% of people who use an opioid for pain for 30 days or more are likely to still be using that opioid one year later. With so much talk lately about improving the financial viability of Medicare, you would think this would be a pretty significant part of the discussion because, uh, as, as we all know, the, the costs of um, uh, opioid use disorder uh, do rapidly spiral out of control and they affect so many different sectors of the economy. Uh, you said in some counties, for example, primary prevention nets for every $1 spent, sometimes 9 maybe even up to $22 in return. Do you, do you uh, have a general sense of what the kind of savings to Medicare might be if there was more of an emphasis on these uh, root cause treatments? Well, I can tell you what it'd be for Tennessee. We did a study uh, last year, and what we were able to find is that if Medicare used a non-opioid treatment as a first line of treatment for acute pain, in lieu of opioids, they could save up to 66%. Here's the thing, studies have, have proven that there are far more effective ways to treat pain other than opioids. That's not why opioids were produced in the first place, but we've used them to treat acute pain. So if we were to use the pain treatment alternatives that were more effective anyway, then we would save a great deal of money and we would have a healthier population because we would have a population that is experiencing less pain and then is not chemically dependent on any medication to get by. Any last things you'd like to add? When we continue to invest in primary prevention, we will continue to see our prevalence of use rates decrease. At some point in time, it's my hope that we'll stop talking about decreases in prevalence of use and just maintaining our low rates in Tennessee. Stephanie Strider, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeremy. For more episodes on in-depth discussions on Tennessee policies related to substance use disorder by a range of local experts, please subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts and visit our website at smart.tennessee.edu. I'm Jeremy Corvellis. Thank you for listening and see you next month.